to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Primary sources are the building blocks of Civil War history, indeed any history, and no such sources give more insight into the daily lives of those who fought in the war than the letters they wrote to their loved ones at home. In 1989, Jubert Kennedy of South Carolina first became aware of surviving letters from his great-great-grandfather. Now, 30 years of research later, University of South Carolina Press has published a South Carolina upcountry saga, The Civil War Letters of Barham Bobo Foster and His Family, 1860 to 1863. We'll talk with the book's editor, A. Jabert Kennedy, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from our traditional location, the third floor of the Brewster Building, on the campus of East Carolina University but not speaking for the university, not speaking for anyone but myself, as our guests will do also. It's September of 2019, second week. In fact, it's 9-11, uh, the uh, 18th anniversary of the, uh, the attack of September 11, 2001. And it is the beginning of the 15th uh, or 16th year of Civil War Talk Radio. 15th anniversary will be coming up next month for that. 
Here in Greenville, North Carolina, last week we experienced Hurricane Dorian, uh, fortunately escaped with minimal damage. I hope if you are anywhere near it, uh, anywhere along the coast of uh, the east coast of the United States, or in Alabama for that matter, I hope you uh, escaped with uh, minimal damage as well. These are becoming annual events. I was looking at my syllabus from last year, last fall, and discovering we had a hurricane that required some changing of schedule. And it's, it's become, I don't want to say routine, but we've certainly learned how to deal with them better here at ECU. Uh, in years past, they would schedule makeup days for classes missed, which would be inconvenient and students wouldn't show up for them. Uh, now the procedure is uh, there are no makeup days, just make sure you get the work made up in some fashion, which uh, in, in the case of the courses I was teaching was able to do by putting the lectures online as if it were an online course with the imagery and uh, audio and my own uh, words all broadcast online. Students watch them when they can and then we met for a regular scheduled class yesterday and talked about what we'd missed very briefly. Uh, online lectures don't make up for uh, in-person lectures in general, I would say that, but doing, uh, but a mix of the two works well, and so here we are right back on schedule, didn't miss a beat with Civil War Talk Radio or with History 1051, glad to be moving on, nor did ECU miss a beat uh, athletically, the weather was beautiful by Saturday after the hurricane had passed, and uh, it was a great football weekend, ECU defeated UNC Charlotte 5 to nothing on Friday and uh, VMI defeated uh, by ECU three to nothing on Sunday. Those uh, by football, I mean, of course, the ECU football women, the soccer team. Uh, the ECU men's football team also played a game apparently and uh, demolished their opponent Gardner Webb by 100 points or so. And given that we had not scored an offensive touchdown uh, in the last two and a half games, can hardly blame uh, the men for piling it on. Uh, well deserved. So we're back on campus, uh, uh, glad to be here. Last year we had bicycles on campus, one of the many changes. There's always something different every year and the, the Lyme bikes are gone. I told you with uh, delight about the chance to ride a, a, a rented bicycle everywhere on campus last year. Apparently they offered to remove the bikes and replace them with scooters and if you looked at a, you may have seen a picture of me if you look at the article and on the EC website uh, that was there last week. There's a link on the Facebook page. I, I cannot be pictured riding a little motorized scooter. And these are not the kind you sit on, but the kind you, you push with one foot. You, you stand up a Razor scooter. Uh, I would be, uh, they would not work for me. Uh, Plus, the whole purpose of the bike is to carry books back and forth in the library. Can't do that on a scooter. So the administration said, no scooters, we don't want them. Uh, we want bikes or nothing, so it's nothing. Uh, so I'm back to walking around, probably best for me. In other Civil War-related news, the current edition of the magazine Civil War Monitor, which I highly recommend, uh, this month's edition has a story on five myths busted by uh, what they call top historians. Uh, who, you ask? Top historians, uh, to reference uh, 
the uh, Indiana Jones movies. Uh, actually, in my view, they got four top historians and me to write a piece about the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, read it. Let me know what you think. The uh, What else is going on on campus? Lots of things. Uh, but let's move on to Civil War talk. Uh, if your Civil War organization, your Civil War roundtable is... Uh, struggling as so many are to keep the numbers up, uh, you should consider sending somebody to the 2019 Civil War Roundtable Congress. It meets in St. Louis, Missouri, September 20 to 22nd. That's just a few days away uh, here as we record this. It is, but tickets are still available. I looked at their website, so uh, uh, send someone there. You'll learn about recruitment and retention governance, fundraising, marketing, all kinds of things, and also tour some historic sites. Definitely a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, it's also not too early for you to start thinking about uh, the year coming up, 2020, and uh, this hallowed ground, the Civil War tours offered by, by uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. I will be leading two of them this year, one in May and one in June in 2020. Uh, so go to that website, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, and see what's up there if you want to consider uh, uh, signing up for one of those. Likewise, June 2020 will be the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Uh, I'll be among the faculty this year, or next year, I guess, 2020. Consider uh, uh, signing up for that as well. Discount for Civil War Talk Radio listeners. And you can always find out what's going on here at the show by listening to me or by going to impedimentsofwar.org, the website, or the Facebook page, Impediments of War. Uh, you'll see there we've got uh, next week's show will be Jack Dempsey returning to the show to talk about Alpheus Williams, uh, a Civil War general uh, much underappreciated. On the 25th of September 2019, Matthew Fox Amato will discuss his book of photography, human bondage, and visual politics. The book is called Exposing Slavery. In October of 2019, Jim Brumall has a discussion of private confederacies, the emotional worlds of Southern men as citizens and soldiers. October 9th, Joe Goodbody will tell us the story of Parker French, the Kentucky Barracuda. And uh, there's lots more. I'll give one more name, though, because I'm really looking forward to this book. Hampton Newsom, who's been on the show before, has a new book about North Carolina in the Civil War. It's called The Fight for the Old North State. It covers the first six months of January, 1860, January to May 1864. So all those are coming up. And while you're there, feel free to contribute to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, the funds donated are uh, not tax deductible because I use them for whatever I want, not for any worthy purpose, although I may use them to buy books for the show. So please consider that. Uh, there's a Facebook or a PayPal link there on the website impedimentsofwar.org. Well, tonight we are talking about uh, a South Carolina family and the letters that their Civil War uh, participants wrote back and forth, which have uh, now been published in a book called A South Carolina Upcountry Saga, The Civil War Letters of Aram Bobo Foster and His Family, 1860 to 1863. 
The editor of this book is A. Jabert Kennedy, and uh, he joins us now. I hope, Mr. Kennedy, are you there? Yes, I certainly am. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, the uh, uh, first thing uh, you and I need to talk about is uh, your pirate heritage. I gather from the publicity material attached to the book and some of our email back and forth uh, that you are an ECU graduate with a history degree uh, and that that has uh, certainly played a role in getting you to to write the book here. Uh, So what do you think of the new coach? Is he doing all right so far? Well, I'm a little out of touch with ECU football, so uh, I have confidence that uh, that uh, they're all holding up Clarence Stasevich's um, uh, high standards. He was the coach I knew back in uh, 1974 when I was there. A wonderful that, man. That, um, it, yes, he, he did set uh, a very high standard. You're absolutely right. And ECU <laughs> does have a very proud football heritage, which kind of fell by the wayside the last two years, but we're, we're hoping it's coming back. They had a good game Saturday. Um, so, uh, but your career path is one, just the kind of thing I like to tell my students about. Uh, uh, you are not a practicing historian. You you had a very different career. Could you talk about that a moment? Yes, I certainly will. Um, my, my early part of my life was moving back. I guess my entire life has been a matter of transitioning back and forth between my love for the sciences and my, my love for the liberal arts, and I started at Georgia Tech in engineering and went to East Carolina and got my degree in history. A few years later, went back into engineering at University of Tennessee with an electrical engineering degree and made a career in um, the nuclear industry uh, here at uh, Savannah Riverside in South Carolina and subsequently uh, several years in the United Kingdom. Upon uh, retirement, I was able to put my shoulder back to completing the letters and the work on this book and was able to get it published and it returned back to an earlier love of history. So I think my whole life has been this transition between science and the, uh, and, and the liberal arts. And it's, it's, it's been fun and uh, the history that I learned at East Carolina uh, formed a, a strong basis for the uh, work that I've been doing since my retirement and in the years leading up to my retirement as I was working on this book over a a very long period. Well, that that is uh, great to hear. It's what we what we preach to our students and our administration that uh, uh, a grounding in the, the liberal arts not only doesn't exclude you from having a a career in any field, including engineering, but it also but it can enhance it. And uh, uh, yes, my wife says uh, you go and uh, get your liberal arts degree for an education, and then you go get a trade. And um, it, it, perhaps that's what's happened in my case. Well, that, that's that's great to hear that it worked out as well as it did. Uh, so these letters are uh, presented beautifully in this book. I have to say, the uh, uh, University of South Carolina puts together a a nice volume. It has uh, uh, well chosen illustrations, many photographs from your personal collection. Uh, has really well done maps throughout that help make clear where the places are that the, the soldiers you're talking about are visiting or, uh, you know, where their their campaigns take them. Uh, so it's just a, a, a delight to, to hold it and read it. Um, but what I'm going to do now, since we're coming up on our first break, is leave is, is 
put a really hard question to you, and then we'll take a break and come back so you'll have a minute to think on it. Um, you say in the introduction, uh, you, you mentioned getting these letters for the first time uh, offered. Your, your father said, do you want these letters uh, back in 1989? And you write, uh, being an ancestor-worshipping South Carolinian, I naturally accepted. Well, you know, taking that even with as a tongue-in-cheek phrase, I almost stopped reading at this point because I'm thinking, I'm a Michigan Yankee. I have no interest in these South Carolina ancestors. Uh, why should I read this book? So let me generalize that. Why should uh, uh, someone who isn't a South Carolinian or isn't particularly interested in, in genealogy and their own ancestors, much less somebody else's, why would they want to read this book? I've got a good answer to that question, but I want to hear yours. And what we'll do is take a break now, come back and find out uh, what this book holds for the rest of us. Uh, the question I'm putting is to the editor of the book, uh, a, uh, excuse me, I'm going so fast I can hardly keep up with myself here, uh, a Jabert Kennedy. The book is called A South Carolina Upcountry Saga. Civil War Letters of Aram Bobo Foster and His Family, 1860 to 1863. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program please send an email to prokopovich g at ecu dot edu that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U 
www.ncc.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jibert Kennedy, editor of a South Carolina upcountry saga, The Civil War Letters of Parham Bobo Foster and His Family, 1860 to 1863. Um, first, let me quickly apologize to you for mispronouncing your name on last week's show. Um, am I getting it right? Is Jibert yes, the correct? Jibert. That's correct. Okay. Um, do you, do you right. go by... By Jabert, or is there a nickname for that? Okay, we'll work with that. Uh, And please call me Jerry. Uh, Thank you, Jerry. Skip the last names. Um, So I I put a tough question to you. Uh, Why does anyone else want to read this book? Okay, well, um, your your intimation was correct from your initial reading. I first thought that I would type up these letters and send them around to my family and cousins. And then uh, as I began working with them, I began to see what a, you know, that there was a historical figure here, and the uh, irony of his life uh, had a greater story. And I found another 250 letters from this same family in the South Carolina Library, so we now had a, a pretty big picture. But I think that this history, this, this, this story is what I might argue would be a micro-history. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charles Joyner, a historian, uh, said that a micro-history is, quote, asks large questions in small places. And so as I think about uh, that, um, that that quote, I think about this book and think, well, what some questions could we ask? Well, what was the relationship between slaves and masters during the Civil War period, and perhaps more specifically in the Piedmont area of the, uh, of the Confederacy? Another question, why did these shoulder, soldiers show such commitment to the Confederacy? And why did they make these sacrifices for the Confederacy? Or you could ask, what was it like to be a soldier in the Civil War? And what impact did the Civil War have have on the lives of the people that lived through it? And these letters were written by educated people who um, knew how to write well, knew how to express their ideas well. And they were able to give us insights into these kinds of questions. So while it's about a particular family in a particular geographical area, these stories were uh, very common and very typical and not unusual to people that lived in the region around Upper South Carolina, in the Piedmont area of both the Carolinas and throughout the South. And I think these insights into why these people behaved as they did and lived as they did uh, can be discovered, uh, at least in part, at least in snapshots. Uh, in books such as this. So I think finding the answers to those kind of questions uh, would be one reason why somebody from another part of the, uh, part of the world and part of the different interests could find um, information to be had. There's also good information about the particular battles they were in, the particular engagements they were in, and that detail can help people put together better uh, understandings of such engagements as well run the Seven Days of Battle, um, the Maryland Campaign, and Fredericksburg. So well, I think I, that's my answer to your question. I think it's uh, you know it shows a window into uh, broader questions. I, I, I as you're speaking, I'm thinking, how can I get you to come and talk to my my history four thousand class, where the seniors are writing their capstone projects? They have to write a long uh, semester long long research project and, and paper, and they struggle to come up with a well, they don't struggle to come up with a topic. They've struggled to come up with a question uh, that can be answered, and and what you were just laying out there were 
just beautiful examples of exactly what a historian you know wants to do with the raw material they have uh, you know to ask these bigger questions uh, that are reflected in in a small uh, a sample in this case so, and 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 that's and this book does touch on all those questions that, that you you raised and they it, those are among the reasons why I found it a very interesting book and why I think uh, many readers would well let, let's for those who haven't read it yet, uh, for our audience, let's let's talk about the uh, about the family. Who who are the the main characters uh, whose letters appear in this book? My say, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Baron Bobo Foster. His family moved into the upcountry South Carolina in the 1790s, and uh, he developed into a uh, prominent Spartanburg area upcountry planter. He had a uh, Two homes, one near his plantation near a small area village called Glen Springs, South Carolina. His uh, primary home was and still exists in uh, Spartanburg called Foster's Tavern. So he uh, developed himself into a prosperous planter. He had, for the upcountry, um, uh, quite a bit of property, and he was a slave owner, of course. He had 43 slaves during the 1860 census. As a young man, he was an ardent uh, nullification uh, supporter, and so when secession came, he was ready to join the secession convention as a representative from Spartanburg District. He formed a company that later uh, became part of the Third uh, South Carolina Infantry and Kershaw's Brigade, and went on to uh, fight in numerous engagements in the Virginia area. His two sons joined the uh, same regiment and were in the same company, as was my great grandfather Benjamin Kennedy. So he uh, participated in uh, the bull run, but then got sick and was uh, uh, um, discharged from the Army. His two sons carried on fighting until one was killed at Maryland Heights as part of the uh, Maryland campaign, and the other son died at Fredericksburg. So you have this, uh, I think, a rather ironic uh, story of this family and this, this man that helped initiate the Civil War, gave everything he had, including his two sons, to... Uh, to the um, to the Confederacy, and ultimately he lost everything uh, from bankruptcy, unable to pay his taxes. All he had was auctioned away. He did manage to uh, live out a dignified life, but uh, but uh, at a terrible cost to him and to his family. So that's sort of the overview of, the, of this family and how they their arc in the uh, Civil War. It, it it really is a tragic story, as as you point out. It, it, I mean, it's ironic, uh, tragic. There's a. Uh, I mean, one one can look at it in a number of ways, but but the sense. Uh, well, well, it reminded me of how uh, uh, the the diary from Dixie, uh, Mary Boykin Chestnut's famous book right. that is, you know, sort of a, a novel and diary form. Scholars now argue. Uh, but she she has written a metaphor for the the collapse of the Confederacy in Southern white society uh, uh, during those years, and one can argue the same thing here that that uh, yes, this man suffers these horrible losses his his, his two sons uh, who based on their letters are, are really well educated and intelligent and interesting people uh, you know then then die in this war which which he brought on, uh, uh, yes. which he was eager to, to to 
see not just in 1860, but even going back to nullification crisis, 1832. Right. He, he's anxious for South Carolina to have have at it, and and he gets his wish. And you know, be careful what you wish for. Right. Right. Well, I think that there was a fervent, I mean, a, a sort of an undercurrent um, of belief that the South really was separate from the North, and many people then really wanted to live separately, and I think that nullification allowed those feelings to come forward. And, of course, when uh, secession occurred, there they were in full bloom, but there had been this undercurrent of an idea of a Southern nation for quite some time. I recently read... Uh, John McArdle's book, The Idea of a Southern Nation, and um, mm-hmm. I think that these people typified that the, the ease with which they they were already prepped for this idea that they would want to live independently from from the United States of America, it was sort of boiling underneath. And I think that uh, the circumstances allowed them to kick it off. But at a, you know, as you say, and as the facts point out, at a, at a terrible, terrible price. But, you know, there, there's an interesting uh, uh, underlying irony to that, which again comes up in these letters, and you highlight it in the, the introductions. And I should point out to to for, for our listeners that you've you've annotated these letters, uh, you know, very thoroughly with with introductions that explain the context of them, not just who the individual names are, but also what's going on around them. Uh, but one of the things you, you show is how much conflict there is within South Carolina between the 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 upcountry uh, the Piedmont right. and the the coastal low country the the people in these letters who are from the from the the upcountry they haven't they don't spare much uh, of affection for the people from Charleston no they didn't there was there had been uh, going back to the uh, really the earliest uh, or earliest um, periods of uh, South Carolina history there was this View, especially starting, well, I don't know where it started, but in the, the low country uh, elite, that the upcountry people were simply bumpkins and and uh, coarse, and to some extent that was true, but that that opinion never got updated. On the other hand, the uh, people in the upcountry grew to feel that people along the coastal area were weak and effete, and um, they certainly uh, had an opportunity to express those feelings about the low country people. When, without barely a good fight, they surrendered, uh, you know, the coastal islands around uh, around um, Hilton Head to uh, mm-hmm. the federal uh, landing from uh, Dupont and his gunboats, and uh, they're scathing in their uh, uh, um, criticism of the Low Country people of not uh, standing up and and fighting and not uh, and uh, not preventing that from happening. So there is an undercurrent, and uh, you can see it in their letters. And they mm-hmm. they, they were particularly uh, angered during the um, during the loss of uh, of um, the coastal islands between Savannah and Charleston. Yeah, so so you have this you know independence move, but even even the the state itself has these schisms within it. And and here in North Carolina, I've learned that there's uh, the same kind of history between the. Uh, uh, bet- between the coast and the uh, people further inland, and of course, you know from attending ECU that uh, to this day there's a sort of chip on the shoulder of, of in the eastern part of the state for the uh, after the wealth moved inland uh, uh, these regional fronts. But the uh, the you mentioned battles. I'm 
want to talk about that a bit. The these are some of the, the most uh, interesting letters from soldiers describing their experiences. Uh, for those who were listening last week, when when Jonathan Steplick was talking about uh, the experience of killing in the Civil War in his book. Uh, 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 fighting means killing, where he talks about how the soldiers regarded this. He has a whole chapter on the language the soldiers used, and he stresses the phrase deliberate aim, that again right. and again he found soldiers talk about uh, they were able to take the lives of fellow human beings, uh, they took deliberate aim, and sure enough, uh, here's here's uh, uh, Tony uh, writing in July 4th, 1862. I took as deliberate aim at them as ever did as I ever did anything in my life. Uh, uh, talking about his first experience in battle. Right, that is one of that was really a, a very moving letter written on the uh, written on the battlefield of um, Malvern Hill. Mm-hmm. That's true. Once they got into the combat, I think they knew what to do, and uh, they, they, they immediately did their duty, and they knew what, you know, their duty was to kill those other people, and it, it comes quickly, I think, especially it, when it, you it, see your friends falling beside you. Which was another thing that was striking about these letters, not only their friends falling beside them in battle, but just how much death there was. In both directions, that the letters home to the the boys, to their sisters, or to their mother, or or, or Colonel Foster to his wife, uh, they are constantly saying, "Oh, and so and so, who you know, died of disease last week. So and so died." So uh, every letter has, "Oh, somebody died," uh, and many of the letters coming back have the same news: "Oh, and so and so in town just died last week." Uh, I was yeah. really struck by how how prevalent that was. Yes, you hear about the disease and sickness, but when you hear people talking about their friends, there's one letter in there to uh, about the death of a William Woodruff, who was a close friend of Perrin Foster's, and how he got pneumonia and died very quickly, and had prayers with his uh, with his chaplain, and uh, final words to his friend, and slipped away in about 24 hours of pneumonia, and that was pretty constant, and uh, and that was before the fighting got so intense. And then when you get into the letters after um, after Tony Foster dies on Maryland Heights and Aaron Foster writes home about how the casualties just keep rolling in from uh, Second Manassas. You know, their friends just keep on dying from their wounds. And the same from uh, Antietam. He writes, when will, these, when will these stories quit coming in? And so it, it had a profound effect upon them as the uh, as the real cost of war um, uh, accumulated um, over over really just a pretty short period of time, you know they only lived through the end of 1862, and there was still several more years of fighting to go, and uh, the killing was you know barely started. That, that's right. The uh, I mean Drew Faust's book uh, uh, about death in the Civil War, uh, the Republic of Suffering, you know she talks about. The, the importance of dying a good death, and you see this again and again in these letters, uh, especially the letters home after each of the the two sons is killed in battle. Uh, right. The, the the letter writers are anxious to assure their parents that the sons died an appropriate death, uh, limited pain, appropriate Christian repentance. They they did everything that 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 you were supposed to do when dying, and and there were there were things you were supposed to do. 
And they, yeah, they were them. buried as well as they could be. They were, they, um, you know, they cared for them as as best they could. Yes, it was important to them. They uh, they they cared that their their honor and um, that was preserved, and that they were doing their duty. And uh, that was extremely important to them. That comes right through the letters. It it, it really does. The uh, in so many windows we get on the experience of these Civil War soldiers through. Uh, you know, through the experience of battle, through the experience of uh, the casualties, both in battle and in camp, uh, through the, the politics they talk about, there's there's uh, a, a real quality of insight here. We're gonna. I want to ask you more about the process by which you came to these letters and how you uh, did the research over uh, three decades, really, since you first found them, uh, according to the introduction. So we'll take another break and come back and talk. A little bit about the process of putting together something like this and how how someone else might go about doing it. Uh, I'm talking tonight with uh, Jabert Kennedy, who's the editor of a South Carolina upcountry saga, the Civil War Letters of Parham Bobo Foster and his family, 1860 to 1863. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, 
talking today with A. Jibert Kennedy, editor of A South Carolina Upcountry Saga, The Civil War Letters of Aram Bobo Foster and his family, 1860 to 1863. We've been talking about this remarkable collection of letters from the patriarch of a uh, well-to-do South Carolina family and his two sons all serve in the 3rd South Carolina Regiment in Kershaw's Brigade of Lee's Army. And the father eventually returns home, his health broken by service in the war. Uh, early in 1862, the two sons continue and are uh, killed in action, respectively, at uh, uh, Maryland Heights in the, the Antietam campaign, and then on Marie's Heights, the Battle of Fredericksburg, uh, both in 1862. It is uh, thus a tragic story in many ways, uh, as the, the father's political ambitions, which include independence for South Carolina, lead ultimately to the destruction of his family. But uh, let me ask, uh, Jabert, when you started this project, uh, the introduction, you, you say you were uh, first made aware of these letters in 1989. Uh, you started out just with the, the letters of, of one uh, of one set of letters, but this book has grown into a 300-page book of uh, numerous letters, numerous people. Uh, how, did, how did that process unfold? Uh, two little facts he called Uncle uh, Grandfather Bobo's pockets which were actually pockets that were sewn inside pants, and they were full of these Civil War letters. So as I typed them up, and then I, I began researching, uh, looking to see where I could find more, if there were any more. And um, uh, Baron Bobo Foster's grandson, Ryan McKissick, was the president of the University of South Carolina in the 1940s. And he gave his papers to uh, the South Carolina Library, and there were another 250-odd letters um, from this same family during this same period in the uh, South Carolina Library. So then I really had the, uh, the makings of a, of, a, of a much larger work. The methodology that you described, there was a, mm-hmm. um, early on there was a Civil War talk by a gentleman named Mac Wickoff, who wrote a history of the uh, 3rd South Carolina Infantry, as well as other uh, other history books. He's uh, uh, is up in the uh, uh, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania uh, National Park area. But he had a roundtable discussion here at the University of South Carolina, Aiken, in 1995. And one of the things he said there to um, other Civil War stor- storytellers to be was, quote, do the research. Mm. And I hadn't really thought about that. I just thought I was typing up the letters. But I began to take his advice and, 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 and work hard to... Uh, go find out who these people were, who the people described in the letters were, what the engagements were, what was happening in the engagements, and try to get those facts right and have it a little more than just a, a series of letters, which is interesting enough in its own right, but being in a context and understand what's being said in the letters and the underlying um, events that are moving in these little brief references, uh, you know, were, were a fascinating part of it. And I sought to uh, identify all the people I could who were named in these letters. You know, Uncle Dickie and, um, and uh, uh, you know, Big Abner Perrin, <laughs> <You know, laughs> things like that, and uh, seeking to find out who those people were. And it was all new to me. I was, um, 
although I, you know, had a history degree, I hadn't worked uh, hardly at all at the time in um, original materials. So this was all new for me to learn how to do. And other people have written uh, groups of letters, and I've learned from them, and uh, tried to follow Wyckoff's advice to to do the research and um, make it something that uh, would be informative and helpful to other people. And uh, knowing where things were, uh, and that is, you know, where people were moving, led me mm-hmm. to uh, uh, get the maps developed and a uh, and a, a landscape um, designer who recently graduated from Harvard, Althea Northcross, uh, created those wonderful maps for me, um, overlaying uh, graphical information with uh, other historical maps. And she just did a marvelous job to help put this picture together of where these boys were, where they went, and what was happening to them, and what was happening in the Confederacy around them. It, it, it's a pet peeve of mine when, when I read a Civil War book that mentions small towns or obscure places, or you know the letters in this case mention these places, and then the maps don't name those places, but the maps show a bunch of other places. Uh, and this one doesn't do that. This one, if, if they say they're camped at a certain place, you can look at the map and see, oh, that's where they are, and uh, it, it's very helpful. I, I went through and identified the, all the place names that came up prominently in the book and uh, made sure that we got them on those maps. I'm sure there were mistakes and things missed, but we worked hard to uh, to um, put these people, you know, in the places where they were, so the readers could follow their movements and see what was happening to them. But it, it, it's also a challenge in doing something like this to to give the right amount of information when describing the first battle of Bull Run. You're not rewriting. You know William C. Davis's book. Uh, you don't need, right. need to give us you know ten pages on it. And someone listening to this show will probably already have a pretty clear grasp of what the first Manassas battle was, and will know the places that are being mentioned in the letters. They don't need a lot. Another reader might need a fairly you know more complete description. So giving the right amount that doesn't overwhelm. The, the new person or bore the person who's already familiar with it uh, it's definitely a challenge and I think this book hits it pretty close uh, where I found you know when you're describing a battle I'd say oh yeah I know that battle uh, right. he's got the facts right I can move on and uh, but I could show this to, to uh, a student who's not familiar with it and they would be able to follow along so so uh, it's an art and, and I, I think you hit it you know, pretty close to the mark here well, I appreciate hearing that from um, from, a, from, a, from a professional historian. I've been a little uncertain, you know, and I, and I appreciate you saying that. It was a was a balance to try to, you know, put myself in the place of both historian readers as well as people who don't know these things at all, and uh, and help them find the right the right balance and the right context for these for these letters. So let me ask another question for someone listening now might think, you know, I've got my great-great-grandfather's letters and I've never thought about. Maybe I could publish them. How did you get connected to uh, to a publisher? And in this case, a very good publisher. Well, I was, uh, I was, I was, I guess, brave beyond my, uh, beyond my knowledge. I, um, <laughs> there was a similar series of regimental letters called Far, Far From Home that uh, covered some of the other people who happened to be in this regiment. That was published mm-hmm. by Oxford University Press. 
um, I think about 15 years ago or so. And so the first draft of this book went to Oxford University Press. And uh, they said they were not interested in the project, but uh, suggested that I contact either University of South Carolina Press or Mercer. And so mm-hmm. since this was a South Carolina book, I sent the manuscript to the University of South Carolina Press. And um, they were intrigued and uh, had published similar books in the past, so I knew it was within their uh, wheelhouse. And mm-hmm. it went through the uh, uh, interdisciplinary reviews, uh, the peer reviews, I think is a better word. And, That's um, right. Just progressed on through the uh, progressed on through the process, and um, so it was really uh, much simpler than I thought. Um, you know, at one point I thought, well, maybe I'll just privately publish this. But my goal was to not do that. The goal was to make it good enough that uh, a, a proper publisher would want to publish it. And um, it seems to have turned out that that happened. Uh, and that makes uh, I will say. For, to some readers, uh, myself included, that makes a big difference because there's a ton of stuff coming out every day on Civil War-related topics, and right. how does one decide what to read? Uh, if a book comes into my office saying, hey, here's a book for your radio show, uh, and it's self-published, my first thought is skeptical. I'll, I'll take a look at it, but the only person who thinks this should be published is the author. When this came in from University of South Carolina Press, you know, from, from the office, I said, okay, this has been peer-reviewed. Somebody who already knows something has taken time to make sure this guy knows what he's talking about. And that then it was worth my time to take a look at it, and you know, reading it paid off. It's a very good book. So, I'm so uh, glad you did. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, no, it was, it was a good... Uh, uh, a good move to to take it to a, a peer-reviewed press, and uh, it is a valuable primary source that, that future scholars can use. Uh, they, they will anyone writing about Lee's army is likely to quote from these letters in, in any future book. And anyone writing about Lee's army who doesn't use this book, you know, is, is missing out an obvious source. So, um, I'm old enough to have known that this, you know, the self-evaluation process and the peer review process. If done in a you know in a proper manner, uh, mm-hmm. just improves the product. You know the, the comments Absolutely. I got from the uh, three people I think that read this book, which just made brilliant uh, insights into the book. You know, it helped me in innumerable ways. Um, and uh, and I, I'm, I'm I wish I knew their names. I only know the names of one of them, but I'm uh, very grateful to them for uh, the, the contributions they made in the editing um, that came from the. Uh, Assigned editor at USC Press was very helpful too. So uh, I always looked upon the uh, the press as, as a partner and, uh, and a and a helpmate, and that's exactly what they were to me. Now, I mean, that's exactly how the process is supposed to work, and and how peer review makes scholarship better. Uh, it's it's often you hear people saying, "Oh, you know, in the modern world, everyone can publish. We're freed from the shackles of of oppressive." Uh, the need for peer review, anyone can be heard now. And it's true, anyone can be heard now, but not everyone is worth hearing, unfortunately, right. uh, at least in Civil War scholarship right. world. So uh, that's a good thing. We've just got a, a minute or two left. I want to ask you, as you were uh, reading the letters uh, you know, for the first time, if you can remember back that far, is there any one thing that really surprised you that you did not expect to find as you were reading these letters? Yes, there was. And then I'm glad you asked that. It was the surprisingly familial, family-like relationship between 
the slaves and the masters. I guess it's uh, easy enough to um, um, be nice to people you have absolute control over, and it's easy enough to be polite and nice back to people who have absolute control over you, and uh, and there's no doubt about that. But you have uh, they never speak about them in, a, in, a, in an angry way or in an insulting way or in a uh, in any negative way. They write home and they say howdy to the uh, Negroes as they uh, as they worded it in the letters, and they ask about them. And uh, Bobo Foster makes sure they have shoes for the winter and. Um, is solicitous, even when uh, uh, he takes his manservant mid up with him up to the uh, Virginia lines. He uh, writes home to his wife about uh, what good work mid is doing. Uh, obviously, mid didn't feel quite the same way because uh, he slipped away from the Confederate lines. <laughs> he runs away, that's made right. Made his way to he, the he, north. He gets and freedom. with the help of a friend who's um, Douglas McCray, who's in the um, uh, uh, history doctorate program at uh, Georgetown, uh, he helped me discover that Mid apparently uh, survived his trip through the uh, Confederate lines, which was no small thing, and ultimately no. shows up in the uh, 23rd U.S. Color Troop Regiment uh, in 1864. Wow. So, uh, that's an intriguing story, and I don't know much more about Mid other than he shows up on their rolls and was sick in the hospital about a week or two before the, the Battle of the Crater. But, wow. Um, he... Uh, I'd love to find more about him, and that's my next area of uh, of, uh, of looking to see if I can find enough about Mid to um, bring his story out. That that really would help close the circle here. That that's uh, and that, that's often a question I close with asking, "What's the next project?" And uh, that sounds like a great project. And we are, in fact, at our uh, uh, past the time for the last question. I'm being told, so we have to wrap it up. But I want to say I. I started the book thinking, oh, this might be just all about, here's my granddaddy's story. And it turned out to be a really well-done piece of history that brings these letters to life. And, and any reader will benefit from reading a South Carolina upcountry saga, the Civil War Letters of Barham Bobo Foster and His Family, 1860 to 1863, uh, edited by our guest tonight, Jabert Kennedy. Uh, Jabert, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It was a delight talk to you, talking to you, and uh, I really appreciate it. It was uh, just a pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.